I start off with everybody saying that there's nothing wrong with you and there's nothing wrong with your mind, right? So whatever you're dealing with, there's a reason why you're experiencing what you've experienced. And if I'd experienced your life the way you experienced your life, I'd be doing exactly what you did. Mm -hmm. So there's nothing wrong with you. All we have to do is find out what created that response and then get it resolved. So often in the mental health space, much like the physical wellness space, we can waste a lot of resources, time, energy, money on managing and coping with the symptoms of stress in our life. This week's guest on the Life Amplified podcast says not only is that an inefficient way to live our life, it's ultimately ineffective. Dr. Don Wood is one of the leading researchers in the trauma field and has developed a method of treatment that he says will help people permanently move beyond the effects of unresolved trauma in their life. He's going to teach you all about it this week. Welcome back to Life Amplified. What is an amplified life? It's having amplified relationships with people who support and encourage you to be your best. It's having amplified energy to conquer the challenges of the day. And it's having an amplified career, one that's meaningful to you, the world, and your bank account. I'm Dan Mason, Life Reinvention Coach, helping you discover your calling and create an amplified life on your terms. This is the Life Amplified Podcast. No matter where you are in your life, what level of your career, income, performance, there's a next level that you want to get to. And so often, when we can't seem to close that gap between where we are and where we want to be, we look for some other external solution, a new marketing course, another degree, another certification, another self-help book. But the real work that's going to help you move forward is by going within. Because unhealed emotional trauma is not just a block to better mental health. It can many times be a block to high performance. And as you're going to learn this week, even some physical health conditions. So excited to have Dr. Don Wood on the podcast. He's a PhD in clinical counseling and psychology. And as you're going to learn this week, he went back to school later in life to research the effects of trauma to help his daughter heal her Crohn's disease and help his wife move beyond an autoimmune disease. Everything that he learned in the process has been distilled down into his TIP program, which he says will help people heal trauma for good. Dr. Wood has helped trauma survivors from the Boston Marathon bombing attack, the Las Vegas shooting, to highly successful executives and world-class athletes. And this week, he's going to help coach you and raise your awareness on the subtle subconscious blocks that might be keeping you from your next level. Some of the topics we'll discuss this week are the unconventional life circumstances that led him to researching trauma. He's going to talk about unresolved trauma and its impact on marriages and relationships. And if you or somebody in your life suffers from IBS, Crohn's disease, colitis, Hashimoto's, he's going to tell you the surprising link between the mind and the body. And well, trauma is that link. He's going to answer the question for us, is trauma stored in our body or are the physical symptoms we're experiencing just the result of what's happening in the brain? He'll talk about the subconscious trauma loop that blocks high performance, and we'll finish up by talking about what we can expect in terms of the lasting impact of living through the collective trauma of the pandemic and future mental health. 
It's an awesome conversation. I'm so proud to share this with you. And if you like what you hear, don't be afraid to give us a follow here on the iHeartRadio app or whichever podcast platform you're listening on. And be sure to share this with your friends. Screenshot the podcast. You can upload it to Instagram and Twitter. You can tag me at CSC Dan Mason, and you can tag Don at Dr. Don Wood. If you're ready to create your next level in life, this conversation could illuminate a whole bunch of blind spots. Dr. Don Wood is on the Life Amplified podcast. Dr. Don Wood, welcome to Life Amplified, sir. Nice to meet you, Dan. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, you know, I always get lit up about these uh, trauma healing conversations. And, you know, one of the things I've noticed over the course of doing this podcast and meeting so many other healers is a lot of people are led to this work because we had to do our own healing from emotional trauma. And certainly my history of trauma of all sorts has been very well documented on this podcast over the years. You're the unicorn, my friend. You're like Bigfoot. <laughs> I think I found you. You're, you're the healer who didn't come from a trauma background. You talk a lot about having an idyllic childhood. Can you yep. speak a little bit about what that experience was like for you? Because many people are like, wow, people with great childhood exists. And also what ended up leading you, the circumstances that led you to studying trauma and getting into this work. Well, it's interesting you, you say that, Dan, because I thought everybody was living my life. I had no idea that my friends were being traumatized because I didn't see the dysfunction in their homes because if I went over, nobody's going to show that and everybody sure. would sort of don't want to talk about it if it's going on in their homes. So it was always a pretty well-kept secret. So I just assumed everybody had my parents and my parents were very, very unique people. They never raised their voice. They never fought. They never argued, at least never in front of us. My brother and sister and I, we can never even remember them arguing. I mean, that's how unique it was. And I, I remember one particular time, I was about 16, and I made some sarcastic comment, not even rude, you know, probably just a little off. And my dad was behind me, right? And he sort of gives me this little tap on the head. And he says, she may be your mother, but she's my wife. And I don't allow anybody to be rude to her. Wow. That was a really powerful message for me. Sure right? On how to treat women, right? Absolutely. And again, like by no means would that have been considered hard, like really bad by anybody else's standards. But in sure. our home, it's like, no, you become very respectful when you talk to your mother, right? Don't do it any other way. So I grew up seeing that and just assumed that that's the way you are. That's the way people are. And it wasn't until I met my wife when I was 18 that, um, that I realized that she was not living in that home. She had a very different childhood, very traumatic with a very disturbed father who'd had no respect for anybody, including his, his own children. So he just terrorized everybody, was very brutal. And so my wife was living in fear and that was foreign to me. I, so I thought she was the unicorn, right? That this is you know happening in yeah. her home until I realized that that was pretty much where a lot of people were living and I just hadn't experienced it. So that was a revelation in terms of seeing her, but then she also swore me to secrecy. I could never tell anybody about this, which is where, where this problem comes in because people don't want to talk about it. In her mind, it would bring, you know, a lot of judgment about her, a lot of judgment about her family. 
And in my mind, I was saying, on the contrary, I don't judge you at all. This isn't about you as a child growing up in a home like this. This is about having a father like this. But it shouldn't be, in my mind, a reflection on you. That did not resonate with her. She was Mm -hmm. like, no. She says, the only reason I'm telling you is because I'm marrying you. And I think you need to know this. I don't want this to come out afterwards. But it it was sort of like, it was like seeing Bigfoot. Like it was like, I knew something was going on in this house because you could feel the tension, right? So there was definitely something going on, but they were trying their best to cover it up. The shame response. I mean, that is trauma in a nutshell, right? That we tend to hold it in isolation. We tend to hold it in disconnection. We judge ourselves for it. We think that we can't be lovable if anybody knew, quote unquote, the real us. So I think that this is actually sort of an important first thing to talk about because trauma shows up in people's relationships all the time. Yes. And not so much in terms of memory, but in terms of responses and triggers. So many of the things that you think are normal uh, that that are the things that are invisible to you can be a trigger for your partner. How did that play out? I mean, without going into the deep mechanics of your marriage, I certainly don't want you to air dirty laundry, but I think that that, that's an important teaching point today for people. How trauma can manifest and show up within the dynamics of our relationships. Well, until I took my wife to our program, this would have been her worst nightmare. Me being on podcasts, talking about her and her childhood. (laughs) Exactly what she swore me never to do. Now she says her life is like exposed everywhere. But the great part about it, after you get that resolved, which is what we do, right? She's not afraid to talk about it anymore. Mm. All that shame and guilt about it is gone. So she realizes that she was living, you know, like a lot of people live. And it was certainly not about a little girl growing up in a house that had any responsibility for the way this guy was being. So that really did help. But like I said, it, it is that shame and guilt that go goes along with it because they don't want to be judged. They don't want people to think differently about them. And so what happens was where the issue comes in is like you mentioned, you know, they call them triggers, right? What I'm saying is it really is an activation more than a trigger. It activates their nervous system. So if I said something like this to my wife, no, I don't like that. She would start to tear up and say, why are you getting upset with me? And I would be like, what are you talking about? I'm not the least bit upset. I didn't say anything to make you think I'm upset with you. She'd go, yes, you did. The way you said it sounded like you're getting upset. And then I would say, well, now I'm getting upset because you're accusing me of doing something I didn't do. I could not hear what she heard. People who have been traumatized as children are highly sensitive to sound. So when I said, no, I don't like that, what she's hearing is, no, I don't like that. Mm. she's hearing it at a totally different level than I said it. So she wasn't wrong and I wasn't wrong. We were just on two different paths. So if I had something a little frustrating at work that day, I'm not upset with her at all. I come home, but there's this little tiny inflection, you know, tension in my voice from something from the day. And when I say it, it comes out differently. And as a child, she had learned to listen so carefully to the way her father spoke because there were times when she could start to recognize when he was building. And that's how she learned how to protect herself. So in her mind, when she starts to hear my voice do that, right, her system gets activated saying, what do we know about that? 
and it goes into a danger response. So she wasn't crying because of what I said. It was her memory activating her nervous system to say, we're, we're dangerous coming. We better start running. And these triggers that you speak of, and I appreciate you sharing that, the triggers are not always audio, right? Can it be as much as like a facial expression triggers something within another person, triggers a trauma response? Absolutely. It can be a sound. It can be a smell. It could be a look, you know, so if, you know, maybe she's in a situation where her father, you know, all of a sudden he gets a scowl on his face and then I do the same thing because I don't like something. And all of a sudden her heart starts beating in her chest. Why? Because her system recognized that as a danger sign. Sure. And there, and so my wife would come out of a store and she would say, can you believe how rude that clerk was? And I would go, what are you talking about? And she'd go, didn't you hear the way she answered that question when I asked her? <laughs> I couldn't hear that. Right. And you see the way she stuffed the bag, the, the clothes in the bag. Right. And I was like, wow, she could see danger in places that I didn't even know existed because she was on hyper vigilant alert all the time. And I think the thing that can be really frustrating, you know, in all when you consider just even outside the marriage, but all of our interpersonal relationships or family friendships, anywhere where we can experience tension is nobody has the same trauma response. Yes. everybody's history is different. So what triggers one person might be completely different. I've done things in my online group programs and in speaking engagements where I have people kind of go back to like one of those memories where they were most vulnerable or sensitive and really close their eyes and put themselves back in it and then open their eyes and I'll make a variety of different facial expressions. Sometimes it might be a silly one where I'll make my eyes wide and put out my tongue and sort of like this clownish like, Right. And, but it's interesting. You can be in a room of 50 people and some people that, that look is enough to break the pattern. They'll laugh, they'll smile. You see them ease while somebody else will take that same look and be like, Oh my God, you're mocking me. You don't like the trigger is, is you don't care about me when I'm in this wounded state. So when you consider that like everybody, (laughs) everybody's response and threat detector is different. How do we even navigate that in the world? Like it's part of what's so maddening, but also part of, I guess, the awareness and the collective conscious that we're building around this conversation, correct? Yeah, that's what I talk about and what we sort of built into what we do in our program is I say the mind and body is designed to heal. Mm-hmm. And really what I'm doing is guiding you through that healing process. You're actually doing the healing. So that's what I like about it because their process is unique. Just as you said, that's a really great observation. Their process is unique to them. So their solution is also unique to them. And so you help them discover that solution and that's what transforms them. That's amazing. And you mentioned the mind-body connection, which I guess is an interesting way to pivot into the second part of this trauma discussion as it pertains to your life and what led you to this work. Because it wasn't just working through uh, supporting your wife and, and through her trauma history. You also went through some experiences with your daughter who was having very real physical symptoms, if I'm not yeah. mistaken. Yeah, when she was 14, she was diagnosed with Crohn's. And um, Crohn's is an autoimmune that they say there's no cure for. 
And so my wife did all kinds of research and she was told to take her off the gluten and dairy and all the traditional stuff. But at the same time, she was getting sicker and sicker. They ended up having to do four resections on her intestines where they literally went in and cut out pieces that it atrophied and died. And what they told us is, is that she's just going to eventually just run out and she'll end up with a colostomy bag. That's going to be the way it is. And there's no other choice. That's what really led me into trying to find answers because my wife said, I'm not accepting that. We've got to come up with a solution. You need to start doing some research. And that's what led me to start researching. And I made that connection between trauma and health issues, in particular, autoimmune issues. A lot of people who have had trauma as a child have Crohn's, IBS, colitis, all of those kinds of things. And that's coming from a dysregulation of the nervous system and activating, constantly activating. So the cells from my daughter and her intestinal area went into a cell danger response. So they become inflamed. And the purpose of that inflammation is to protect the integrity of the cell. That cell danger response is a, you know, an evolutionary design system to protect you, to stop anything from penetrating the cell temporarily. So nothing gets into the cell, but nothing gets out of the cell until the danger passes. When the danger passes, then the immune system comes and kicks back in, and then the uh, neurotransmitters and immune system become back online. So the problem for my daughter was, is the danger never passed. It stayed in an active cell danger response because the trauma was looping and staying active. So until we could get that trauma resolved, her response to it was inflammation in her intestinal area. Mm. As soon as we got the trauma resolved, the Crohn's went away. She hasn't had a Crohn's flare up since. And now that doesn't make sense, right? Based on what they tell you Crohn's is. And the doctor who uh, treated her said, um, she ended up with a cyst had formed on her ovary. So he ended up having to go in and take it out. And when he operated, he said, he came in after the operation. He said, I'm confused because your chart says you have Crohn's. And she says, yeah, I have Crohn's. He says, but I operated. I don't see any evidence of Crohn's. And she says, no, I haven't had a flare-up in a while. And he says, but you're not on any medication for Crohn's. She goes, no, I'm not taking any medication. So he says, well, I hate to tell you this. You've never had Crohn's. And she says, no, I've had I've gone down to 90 pounds. They've had to take parts of my mm. intestines out. And he says, well, Crohn's doesn't go away. It's either active or you're on medication to suppress it. And so when I explained that I believe that the trauma was keeping the Crohn's active, he said to me, go, that's impossible. And I said, well, then you tell me what Crohn's is. He says, Crohn's is a lifelong debilitating disease with no known cure. And I said, I believe Crohn's is just inflammation. Inflammation is the response to the trauma. That made no sense to him. And so he he turned to my daughter and he says, when you get discharged, I'm going to set up an appointment for you to come in to my office and I'm going to get you back on your uh, medications with no symptoms. Fascinating. It seems like because so much of this trauma discussion, it's still relatively new, you yeah. know, in, in terms of, you know, the grand history of the medical world. And I see this happen a lot, like in traditional therapeutic modalities versus some of the things that the conversations that people like you and I would have. There's a psychiatrist on TikTok. Uh, an older lady, I think she's like an older German lady, 
Um, but she'll take a lot of the younger yoga teachers and people like that who are doing these videos and pretty much play clips of their videos and then just rip on them. Why, like, from the psychiatric perspective, it's not valid. You know, so there's people talking, you know, you'll see younger people talking about trauma is stored in the body. And her whole thing is to rail on them. No, trauma is stored in the hippocampus. What, what's the truth on that? Is it that we actually store the trauma at a cellular level in the body or that there's something happening in the brain that is sending signals down through the vagus nerve? From your experience, what's the answer on that? I don't believe it's stored in the body. I believe okay. it's coming from the mind, that the mind is in a threat response. And I always say it this way. I think of the brain as the computer, the body's the printer. So you can have all the nutrients and supplements in the body, but if the brain is sending signals right to the printer, it's going to change the way it prints. So we have to balance that. So in my mind, um, the body receives the signal and the body gets into distress. And I believe that when there's active trauma and the trauma is continuing to loop, the reason we're getting sicker, the reason it shows up in the body is because the mind stops doing maintenance. It's doing minimal maintenance. So all of a sudden now you start having things like Crohn's, you start having physical symptoms. And that's why I see, I think that's why they claim it's being stored in the body. But I think the body's just not getting the attention. The body is having a response to the signals that are being sent from up top. Yes. Okay. Understand. And to go back and I love everything you're sharing. You talk about this memory loop that the, the trauma is running on a loop. Right. In your experience, is that happening at a conscious level or subconscious? Because I don't think necessarily people in adulthood are consciously walking around thinking about the person who abused them or hurt them or molested them. It, it, is that happening at a conscious level or is it just the programming that's going on behind the scenes and we're not aware of it? It's almost always subconscious. It can get activated consciously if you think about it. So what would happen is if my wife tried to talk about what happened to her, she would then activate it consciously. Because as soon as she started talking about it, in order to start telling me what happened to her, she has to activate memory. And then that would then activate her nervous system. But there were many times she ended up with Hashimoto's. Hashimoto's is another autoimmune, right? So her cortisol levels were through the roof. So she, the way I explained it is, it's like getting into your car, putting your foot on the gas all the way down to the floor and using the brakes to keep you going 30, right? Mm. The whole system's getting stressed out. The brakes, the transmission, the engine, everything is over. It's not meant to be doing that. So your fight or flight response is an emergency management system designed to protect you against a threat, perfectly designed system. And so the problem for my wife was she was seeing, like I said, at the store, when the clerk said something, she could see danger. She could hear somebody being rude, disrespectful. That was constantly keeping her system engaged. You're in danger. So of course, her thyroid's going to burn out, which is what, what Hashimoto's really is, is the thyroid just basically is just exhausted because it's constantly producing cortisol for your fight or flight response. It's not designed to do that. So- but the good news is, as you know, right, and you're working with people, we can fix it. Sure. You don't need everything right now is being taught people to live and manage and cope with it. So when people come into me and they say, oh, I have really bad anxiety. And I say, okay, so what's causing that? It's not 
we're going to treat your anxiety. We're going to treat what caused the anxiety, right? Where everything most is- people and most people don't know the answer to that, do they? No. Like they just is that the dangerous part? Because a lot of times we pathologize the symptoms and give it a title. Yes. And then it becomes an identity for people. So yeah. it's sort of like, like once you start relating to yourself as well, I, I'm, I have anxiety. I have treatment-resistant depression. It's almost hard to even open yourself up to the fact that you can move beyond that. And, and sometimes what I see in people is they'll want to hang on to that diagnosis because there's a sense of certainty or sometimes people can even find significance in, in the diagnosis of the suffering. So how do we bridge that gap between realizing that the, the symptoms at the physical level, anxiety, depression, whatever that is, is simply, is simply a temporary condition and we can learn to move beyond it? How do we bridge that gap? That's really what I talk, the first thing I talk to them about yeah. is I'll say, tell me what you're dealing with. And if they say I'm dealing with this or that, and I'm saying, okay, that's a symptom, right? So now let's get to the underlying cause of that symptom. Once we pull that out by the root, right, we've got it taken care of. I says, but probably what you've been doing is pulling the weed out at the top and then it keeps growing back. And so you've sure. never solved the problem that created it. And, and I use the story of my daughter and I, this happened and we, we come walking into the house and I see that the pool is low, the water's gone down. And I said, now if we were pool therapists, I said, the first thing we would do is we'd say, let's get a hose and fill up the pool. I says, but if we look at it, we'll say, why is the pool low? Let's figure out what caused that. So maybe it's just the, the pool, the water evaporated. But if it's not, maybe there's a leak. Let's find out where the leak is and fix the leak. Otherwise, every week we're going to be filling up the pool. Let's get to this to solve the problem. That way of looking at it is completely different. And we take away all that stigma that there's some, I start off the first thing I say to somebody, there's nothing wrong with you and there's nothing wrong with your mind. Your mind is responding exactly the way it's designed to respond. Mm. And that's what it's designed to do. So why is your mind doing it? Because something created it. And it's a response to protect you, right? Against what it perceives as a threat. Many people are aware of the big T traumas that they've experienced in their life. I mean, you know, in most therapeutic modalities, you know, it's you're like, Tell me about your parents and which one hurt you. Like that's, where we, that's where we start the conversation. But the trauma responses you're describing and the experiences of anxiety, sometimes depression, it might, all, it might not always be linked to the obvious big T thing. There's a lot of people who'd be like, oh, well, I don't have trauma. And, and I dated a girl one time when I lived in New York who like, she was aware of the work I did. She's like, I just... I feel so bad for those people. I mean, I grew up in a perfect home. I never, I never had trauma. My parents were great until we were getting ready to go out one night and she went to go put on a dress, but the dress didn't fit. You know, she was maybe five pounds past. And the next thing I know, she's literally having this response where she's throwing the dress across the room in a fit of anger. And it turns out like when she was six years old, you know, her dad took her to get a haircut and she wanted to get a like a um, a bob, right. and she came home and mom said, "Oh my god, that makes you look fat." Boom! Instant instant trauma. It's yeah. not necessarily abuse, and it's a ten second moment in time that's not obvious, but still was creating a lot of tension and anxiety around weight or image. So, can you talk to a, a little bit, of, or, and maybe you have some examples 
of times when people are having huge symptoms or a huge block in their life, and it's actually related to something relatively what we would perceive as being small, but really isn't. That's a great question, because I, I wrote my second book is called Emotional Concussions. I turned mm. the coin from exactly that because people would say, you know, they'll look at some of the people on our site with testimonials of these big T trauma and they'll go, just like you said, oh, I don't have anything like that. And so, but you could have had a series of emotional concussions growing up that could have come from a parent, from a coach or from a teacher that maybe told you you're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You'll never make it to the, to the pros. So those are the kinds of things, those emotional concussions can accumulate and, and start having a major effect on you later in life. So as, and sometimes with the best of intentions, like you were just describing sure. with your girlfriend, your, her mother wasn't trying to hurt her. She was just making a comment, but you take a child who doesn't have a, not a lot, not a lot of life experience. They don't understand that. So they're interpreting it through a fairly small lens. Uh, an example is my wife, when she was young, she's obviously living in a traumatic household. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the, the poor thing is going to a tea party that some mothers have put on in the neighborhood. And so her grandmother dresses her up in a really pretty dress and does her hair. She's so excited. You know, she, when she told me the story, she's sobbing. And she says, because when I get to the tea party, she says, the mothers are all sitting there to greet the little girls coming in. And one of the mothers says, oh, look at this one. This is going to be a real heartbreaker when she gets older. And the other mothers are like, oh, yeah, she's going to be a real heartbreaker. My wife is sobbing, telling me this story, said she got sick to her stomach and wanted to go home. Because in her mind, she thought they saw something bad in her. Because that's what she's feeling. You know, she's living in this world saying, I hope nobody figures out, you know, what's going on in my world. And then in her world, she's now hearing, oh, they know all about what's going on. I'm a bad person. I'm living with this, you know, all that stuff that she's dealing with. Yeah. Yeah. Particularly in the context of whatever abuse is happening on the side. So it's, it's less in many instances, it's less about the incident that happened and more about what's going on inside of us because of the incident, what we're making it mean, the context that we give it. It's the meaning. What does it mean about me that this is happening? It also can go into the meaning of the world's not safe. And so if you have a parent that is really dysregulated a lot, you know, maybe not hurting you, but at the same time, maybe getting angry, throwing things, right? So what you're learning as a child is the world's not a safe place. Sure. And so then you get into a relationship with somebody and the, your nervous system gets activated because they're not making you feel safe. Unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. You know, as we lay out all these different forms of trauma that exist and all the different ways it can manifest from, you know, psychological to emotional to physical issues, what's, what's the way that we move past it? Let's talk a little bit about your program, the TIP program, and and maybe some of the science or some of the things that you've learned that aren't being talked about in the mainstream trauma conversation. Yeah, really what I discovered in my research was that it's a glitch. What is happening is, is that your survival brain, your subconscious mind is fully present in the moment all the time. Everything for that part of your brain is happening now. It's the same way the animal brain works. Animals are fully present in the moment all the time. So if you read all the self-help books, they tell you that's the key to being happy and successful. Be present, be in the moment. 
However, we have a very, only humans do this. We have the unique ability to store explicit details about events and experiences. Animals don't do that. They don't store information about events. They learn through repetition and association, but they're not storing information about what's happening to them in their world. They're fully present in the moment. So because we store tremendous details about events and experiences, when we're in a traumatic situation, all your senses are heightened, sight, smell, hearing. So how's it recording this? High def, very Mm -hmm. bright, very intense, a lot of data being pulled into that memory. So here's where the glitch comes in. If something activates your memory and your mind starts viewing data from five years ago, when does it actually think it's happening? Right now. Yeah. So it creates a physiological response. All you know is your heart's pounding in your chest and you don't know why. But there was a sound, a smell, a face, a name, right? That activated your mind to start looking at memory. What do we know about this experience that we're in now? And it then does a Google search. Have we experienced this before? Have we seen this before? And then activates your nervous system because it thinks something's actually happening. That's an error message. And so I usually say to people, can you tell me what you ate for dinner last night? So I'll ask you, Dan, what did you have for dinner last night? Uh, steak frites. Steak frites. So yeah. you saw pictures, right, of what you ate or maybe where you were when I asked you that question. Yeah, yeah. sure. That's how you stored the information about dinner last night. No animal does that. It's only humans. But because it wasn't threatening or disturbing, it was stored as a fairly low-resolution file. When we have a traumatic event, we're in a very high beta brainwave activity state. So it stores it in beta, high-intensity information. Then when your mind recalls it, it's so bright and intense that it has to respond to it. So when I was saying to my wife, no, I don't like that, I thought she was tearing up because of what I said. It wasn't. When I said that and she heard that little inflection change in my voice, her mind did a Google search. What do we know about men that start to get upset? And a whole flood of data would come in about her father and the experiences. And there's where her nervous system, she'd start to cry. But we thought, her and me, that it was what I said. There's where that subconscious, right? Too much data coming in, overloading your nervous system. And then you start to go into a fight or flight response and you don't even know why. And is this to some degree, like if we take this to an extreme level, and there's two things I actually want to go back to that you said that were super important. Because a lot of times that the body is recognizing that threat subconsciously before we're even aware consciously, correct? Like we're walking into a room you see, a, you see like somebody give you a facial expression or shoot a dirty look because they've got their own thing going on, but you have an interpretation of that. Is it that we're, we're literally experiencing the response before we even know what the threat is, correct? Yes. So it's 400 millionths of a second. And it was something I found in my research called the time slice theory. And the time slice theory is developed by two scientists out of the University of Zurich that said, is consciousness streaming? And most people would think, yeah, it's streaming. However, it's not. It's streaming to your subconscious. So your subconscious takes in all the data in real time, processes it, and then sends time slices, like clips from a movie reel, to your conscious mind. 
and that's 400 milliseconds later. So you've already responded before you're even consciously aware of it because your subconscious has already done the Google search. We know we're in danger because we've seen this before. And the response that's happening subconsciously that we're not aware of, a lot of times, depending on your coping mechanism of choice, for people that can be to grab a drink, that could be to do drugs, that could be gambling, that could be pornography, procrastination, I mean, whatever. And once we're sort of engaging in the, the low vibe coping mechanism, you know, to ease that pain, if the threat's coming on, is that what creates the shame spiral? That, sure. you know, we end up engaging in some sort of toxic behavior that blocks us from our goals. And then it's almost sort of like creates the feedback loop of, well, there it is. There's proof I'm not worthy or that I'm not good enough. I'm not lovable. And we kind of just end up circling the drain that way. Yeah, because when you're constantly doing that Google search, you're building codes. How do we respond to this? So your brain is constantly coding responses to situations. So if you've continually done the same thing, you've built a neural pathway, a code on how to respond to it. Then you automatically reach for the drink, reach for the drug, right? It's a code that got built. And I often hear people say to me, oh, I sabotage myself. And I say, sure. it's impossible to sabotage yourself. The brain's not capable of sabotaging itself. It's survival-based. It's yeah. actually trying to protect you. So somebody will say, well, but I'm on this great path. Everything's going really well. And then all of a sudden I do something stupid and I go off in this direction, right? Isn't that sabotage? And I say, no, because your mind was trying to avoid pain. It assumed pain was coming based on its experiences of what it knows about this particular path. So it creates another path. Hmm. That's not sabotage. That's survival. Sure. Why did people jump out of the buildings at 9-11? They weren't dying. They weren't jumping to die. But if they didn't jump, they would die. The only sure. thing the subconscious wants to do is protect you now. So if I don't jump now, I die. So your subconscious has no relationship to time. So the only thing it's responsible for is keeping you alive now. So if I jump, it did its job. I'm still alive. Now, the conscious part of your mind goes, well, that makes absolutely no sense because if I jump of out of a building, I'm going to die. But logic and reason, right, is always overridden by survival. There's no logic in survival. It's a survival response that's built on a conditioning. And I guess that that's the thing, right, is like if we are perpetually living in the trauma response we're living reaction to reaction and not really able to ever get to that high level of reasoning or thought, correct? Right. Yeah. So the part of your brain that has that impulse control gets overridden constantly because there's too much data about the pain. So if you've experienced a lot of pain and then all of a sudden keep responding a certain way, right? That impulse to stop drinking cannot engage because there's too much data overriding that reason and logic to stop. So how the hell do we interrupt all this, Don? <laughs> like what, talk a little bit more about the program because I think you've done a great job of sort of explaining the mechanics of how it happens. What can you do in your program that helps interrupt that or perhaps you know, rewire the, the brain through neuroplasticity to, for a different response? The way I sort of explain it is if you have a beta stored memory, 
the idea is I take you through a four-hour process. So I get you into such a restorative mindset. Your mind is feeling very, very safe and relaxed. We spent a lot of time discussing the science behind why your mind's doing it. And there's nothing wrong with you. Of course, your mind's going to do that. There's a reason why it does everything. Then by the time we start looking at some of these events and experiences, we're going to take them from a beta state into the current state you're in, which is alpha. It reprocesses that data into a very, very relaxed, focused state. That changes the way it sees it. So it's not got that intensity to it. So we're going to do, when I asked you what you ate for dinner last night, we're going to take it from this high intensity data memory into what you ate for dinner last night. And then mm. it's not calling for the response because it's not seeing the intensity and amount of detail in the event anymore. Give me an example of like one of your favorite case studies on somebody who's, who came to you in a, in a dramatic, you know, I don't want to say dramatic, but certainly an undesirable pattern of behavior living in that trauma response and where they were able to get to. Is there like one particular client that stands out? Yeah, I've got a really good one. I use this one a lot because it's, it's so dramatic. And it, it was a U.S. Army sniper who had to shoot and kill a 12-year-old boy. Uh. And so what I explained to him is I said, the reason you're feeling the emotions, the purpose of an emotion is to call you into action. The purpose of fear is to escape a threat. The purpose of anger is to attack and extinguish a threat. So if you think about something that happened to you five years ago and your heart's beating in your chest, is because your mind thinks something's happening and it's calling you into action. That's the glitch, the error message I was talking about. So when I met with him, he said to me, he goes, I can't live like this anymore. He says, I've spent the last eight years trying to deal with this. They keep asking me to talk about it and go over it and over it. He says, I don't want to talk about this anymore. And I said, well, here's the good news. I'm not going to need you to talk about it. I says, we're just going to get it fixed. And I said, he said, well, I got arrested at the VA last week because I, they started asking me to talk about it. And I started picking up tables and chairs and throwing them. He says, I can't do this anymore. So by the time I was finished, we have about a four-hour process. We had that. There was a couple of others, but the one big one was actually shooting a 12-year-old boy. By the time I was finished with him, he could describe it in complete detail. He gave me every detail about what he could remember about it without shaking and crying. And he said to me, he goes, how the bleep did you do this? How am I able now to think about it without, he was just sobbing when I first met him. And I says, because for eight years, your mind has been trying to get you not to pull the trigger. It's been calling you into action for eight years because wouldn't that solve the problem? If you don't pull the trigger, right? It stops the trauma, but you can't do that. But your mind's seen you pull the trigger in real time and it's calling for you to stop it. So the ultimate goal in your process, if you had to drill it down to the most meaningful level of change, is it changing at the level of the emotion that's wrapped up in the memory? Is it changing the belief around the memory? Or is it in somehow changing the memory itself? Like what, what exactly is leading to that result? I, I would say probably if you really simplified it, is changing the response. Mm. because when the mind sees the format that it's now stored in, which is that very, you know, reduced state, it doesn't feel there's a threat. It's not interpreting a threat now. So when he was thinking about what happened, his mind realizes it's not happening now. The same way is 
it was stored in that very alpha brainwave state instead of a beta brainwave state, which was calling it into constant action. So what I say is the only reason you have an emotion is a call for an action. So we don't change the emotion. There's no emotion now. Let me ask you this. If we take this conversation and we put it in perspective of what we're living through now, the world is, has lived through a collective trauma for the past year. Do we know what the effects of this situation are going to be? I was having this conversation with a colleague or we sort of like philosophically talking about this. Is it actually what, what we're experiencing in the moment, not even really about the lockdown or the pandemic, more than it is the original trauma programming that was established in childhood and our view of the world of am I safe or people reliable? It, it, does that make sense at all? Like, are we dealing with like the effects right now of the pandemic or all of the survival programming that was developed decades ago on how to deal with a threat? No, that's exactly it. You, you nailed it. That's what I believe. I believe that we're coming into a tsunami of mental health problems because of this. I don't think we're in fight or flight. I think we're in freeze. Mm. Everybody's just saying, okay, this is going to be over soon. It's going to be over soon. Just put on a mask. Don't go to work. Be careful, right? That's a freeze mode. It's just, let's get through this once it's over. When this thing starts to unfold and we start trying to go back to normal life, that's when I think we're going to see the effects of it. We've been in a giant freeze mode. Just talk to people when they were going through it. What would they say? Yeah, you know, I just, I wear the mask. I I want to be compliant. I want to make sure that I'm, but all of a sudden now what's going to happen when we start to come out of that freeze is that's when you were just talking about, right? Well, yes. For this. I mean, hasn't there been some degree of fight or flight also, like the people who are storming Costco without a mask and recording it on Instagram, that seems like a fight or flight response. Yeah, there is that as well. But I'm saying, I think most people who aren't doing that kind of stuff are in freeze. Sure. I'm going to be compliant. They tell me to do this. I'm going to do that. Right. They're going back to their childhood. Mom said, put on the, you know, brown pair of pants and put on the brown pair of pants. And then eventually... When you become a teenager, you go, you're not telling me what to do. Yeah. I sent an email to my database just this morning. And one of the things I wrote about is like, we're all talking about the return to normal, right? But the return to normal is only great if your normal was great before (laughs) all this. And good old days weren't necessarily good old days. Yeah, right. Like, I think that there were so many of us, we were still living in the trauma response, but it might be about your relationship, your kids, your stress at work, whatever thing you want to blame it on. And this has just been sort of the new vehicle through which we can experience that response. So in your mind, like once we do get out of this, do you think this is what we're going to see? It's just like a surge in PTSD or, yeah. Yep. For the people, like you said, the, the exceptions are the people that are getting angry already and yelling and screaming and creating problems or defiant, right? They're already in that mode, right? But I think there's a lot of people who are just the normal average people that are trying to be compliant and be good citizens and, and not affect everybody that I think they're just in a freeze and they're going to come out of it. And then there's Which, a lot of anger. There's going to be a lot of frustration. You know, hey, I lost money. I lost my job. I, you know, all these things happened. 
and sure. the government's pouring money into it to try to keep us not feeling that pain. Which is interesting, because even when you say, when you phrase it that way, the people who have been compliant, who don't want to rock the boat, a lot of times that's a condition response too, oh. based on our childhood, is we just accept what's given to us and you don't question it and, you know... <laughs> Well, like, do you remember a few years ago? I'm not sure exactly when it was, but the woman who was on a plane and she said she fell asleep and then she woke up and the guy was sexually assaulting her and she did nothing. And then people afterwards were like, that doesn't make any sense. Like, why wouldn't you just scream or yell? You're on a plane of passengers and pilots and flight attendants. She couldn't. She was in freeze. That was the response. It's something that happened in her childhood that says, let's just get this. Let's just get through this. Mm. not in a position to fight right so she went into her conditioned response that's what i think a lot of COVID has done to people is put them into a conditioned response i have no control over this i i can't do anything about it i'm helpless so in short whatever we're not dealing with right now is probably going to show up as an avalanche you know at some point six months a year six years from now i believe so and then the other thing that I'm, I'm really concerned about, and I, I know they don't talk about, but I think is going to be a problem, is wearing masks. What is that doing to the oxygenation of our blood? What is that doing to our system? Our system is not designed to be deprived of oxygen for long periods of time. So if you constantly, my wife, it was a perfect example. She went to the doctor and they put the pulse oximeter on her and they said, oh, the blood oxygen saturation is a little low. My wife goes, oh, hold on, let me do this. She pulls her mask down. She says, give it a minute. Comes back up. Interesting. Yeah. I didn't even consider that. When you uh, pregnant women, you know, we go to this one restaurant. There's a lady, there was actually, it was two ladies who were pregnant, you know, quite far along in their pregnancy, having to wear masks as servers. What's that going to do to the child? What's that going to do to the development of the child? I, I believe that that's another problem that's coming up. Well, there is so much, I mean, we know so much now that the develop, the brain development, healthy brain development begins in utero. And there's so much, you know, Dr. Uh, Gabor Matei talks about this a lot, about the level of stress on a mother during pregnancy mm-hmm. is having effects on, on the baby before it's even born. Yeah. And, you know, certainly you can talk about, you know, from a policy standpoint, even the things like economic stress or anything with domestic abuse or I remember I met somebody who was friends with my parents years ago at a convention. And I had never met this gentleman before, but he was really good friends with my dad. He told me the story. He's like, yeah, he goes, we were living in Atlanta. Your father called me. You know, he was painting your nursery before you were born and uh, the air conditioning was broken and it's Atlanta in the middle of the summer. And he called me freaked out. He's like, he said, your mom walked into the, uh, to the nursery and said, I'm not in love with you and I'm going to leave you. Wow. And it, he's like, oh, and he goes, I told your dad, you know, that that was, you know, that sometimes just pregnancy hormones that happens <laughs> to women. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, knowing what I know about my mom now, I was like, no, that was probably just an average Wednesday in their marriage. It was a Wednesday. <laughs> but, but I'm thinking to myself, oh, my God, like if that's sort of the environment that was happening internally with my mother, I was like. A, that explains a lot, and B, good on me that I'm, that I'm functioning now. Okay, okay, yep. 
Well, yeah, those things. I, I had a lady who'd come in and she had experienced a major trauma with her husband. I won't get into the details of what it was, but a major discovery about something about her husband when she was like really in her pregnancy. And so obviously they separated and eventually divorced, but she was really struggling. So when she came in, I, I was taking her through the program. And as I was going through the program, when we started to clear a lot of this trauma, up, she says to me, she says, give me your hand. And I said, okay. And she takes my hand, she puts it on her belly. She says, and the baby was kicking like crazy. She goes, I haven't felt this baby kick hardly at all. She goes, this baby's loving what we're doing right now. That wow. just was a perfect example of that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, when we talk about that, just even both from a pregnancy and from a developmental standpoint for the children who've, you know, yep. been stuck in the house or haven't been oh. able to go to school or go to the playground, it really, it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating conversation when we think about the road ahead, but also just raises the importance of doing that work and, and doing your internal work to move beyond it. Dr. Don Wood, amazing conversation. I'm so glad you're here. Is there anything that we didn't cover that you want to share or anything that you'd like to leave the audience with? Well, the thing I always like to say to people is um, I start off with everybody saying that there's nothing wrong with you and there's nothing wrong with your mind, right? So whatever you're dealing with, there's a reason why you're experiencing what you've experienced. And if I'd experienced your life the way you experienced your life, I'd be doing exactly what you did. Mm -hmm. So there's nothing wrong with you. All we have to do is find out what created that response and then get it resolved. And then the mind goes back. Our minds and bodies are designed for homeostasis. What's interfering with that? And that's why we called our program a performance program, not trauma therapy. Because the idea is, is that when we get trauma resolved, performance goes up. Mm. And everybody mm. wants to perform at a higher level. Everybody has another gear. Everybody has another level of performance. And what I have found in most situations when I deal with professional athletes or CEOs, executives, is that when you get to that underlying cause, their performance improves. I love it. Amazing. How can people uh, connect with you here after the uh, podcast today? Where can they find you on social, on the web? Uh, we have a whole bunch of different, you know, we're on Facebook and everything. But if you go to www.gettip, T-I-P-P, gettip.com, it'll open up all those different avenues. You can communicate with us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram or go to our website. You'll see a ton of testimonials of people who've experienced how the program has helped change their lives. Awesome conversation. I'm so happy that uh, we were able to spend this time together today. Thank you so much. I loved it. Thanks again. What were your biggest aha moments this week? For me, I love the conversation and the clarity that trauma isn't necessarily stored in the body, but the inflammation and the pain and the physical symptoms are informed by what's happening in the brain. I thought that that was such an important distinction. And I also love the reframe that unhealed emotional trauma isn't just about better mental health. It's at the core of getting to your next level and improving performance. So grateful to Dr. Wood for stopping by the podcast. By the way, he has a special offer. If you'd like to uh, look further into the TIP program, go to the link in the show notes. You'll get all the info there for our listeners. And uh, if you love what you're hearing, by the way, be sure to screenshot this podcast, upload it to Instagram or Twitter, and tag us both. You can find me at CSC Dan Mason, and you can find him at Dr. Don Wood. Coming up next week on the podcast, we're going to take this conversation 
and go a step further. I'm actually going to demonstrate for you in very practical terms uh, about how unidentified emotional trauma can get in the way of creating your next level. We're going to actually do a replay uh, from a live coaching class that I did recently And you're going to hear how this process sort of works in action. And don't forget, I do have some spots open right now for one-on-one coaching. If you would like to expedite your results and get to the core, get to the heart of what's keeping you from your next level, you can get more info at creativesoulcoaching.net. Fill out that application, set up a discovery call, and we'll talk about how we can accelerate your results. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, Don't forget, we'll take those five-star ratings and reviews for our friends on Apple. Give us a follow if you're on any other podcast platform. And in the meantime, turn down the volume on your negativity, turn up the volume on your purpose so you can live life amplified. I'll talk to you next week.